What's up, everybody? This is Grant at Cause Artist. Welcome to another episode of the Disruptors for Good podcast. Today is a very exciting interview with legendary entrepreneur and venture capitalist Brad Feld, who's the co-founder of Techstars and the Foundry Group. And for those who don't know what Techstars is, each year the company chooses over 500 early stage companies to join for one of their three months mentorship-driven accelerators. And then they invest $120,000 and provide mentorship and access to the Techstars network for life. Pretty incredible. To date, the Techstars accelerator has accelerated over 2,000 companies with total funding eclipsing $9 billion, with those companies having a total market cap of $26 billion. We talk a lot about Brad's history. I mean, we go from the beginning of his time at MIT and then founding his first company, selling his first company, making his first investment, all leading to a life of entrepreneurship and venture capital, which which led Brad to invest in a lot of early stage companies and most you've probably heard of, like Zynga and Fitbit. We also talk a good bit about the Sustainability Accelerator in partnership with the Nature Conservancy that is really focusing on turning research and science, building companies from it. To me, scientists have some of the best opportunities to be the most impactful entrepreneurs. And usually that's not the route that they're told to take or taught to take. It's really a life of research and dedication in that realm. But turning that research into really impactful businesses that can create jobs and you know can create change in, in a lot of people's lives around the world is, to me, a very important thing. And, and any sort of accelerator or business model or program that can get more scientists involved in entrepreneurship early on, I think, is an incredible opportunity for our world to solve significant problems as, as, we, as we have now and as, as we move move forward, of course. And a lot of our conversation really covers his new book, The Startup Community Way. I'm finishing up right now one of his other book books called Venture Deals, which I have found to be incredibly, incredibly educational and, and filled with knowledge. And it's really helped me uh, look at calls artists a bit different and, and look at some of the things I want to do in the future a bit different. And I cannot wait to read the new book. I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. I, I really loved it and I really appreciate Brad taking the time. I know he's busy, busy, get busy guy. So I'm glad we can we can get this this on the book and, and really do this for you guys. I, I think it's just such an in-depth uh, conversation. I think he's such a deep thinker and you could tell by his answers that it's a every answer he gives is a very eloquent and thought out process. And it seems like that's how he builds his companies. And that's what he, he looks at when he invests in invest in companies as well. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. A little bit of a housekeeping note is that I launched a submit news area for cause artists. So all the press releases sent to me, I apologize for, for those who I haven't got back with, but I've created a portal where you can just submit your press releases now and it will be featured on cause artists. So obviously make sure the content is relevant for cause artists. Uh, everybody that, that's been submitting stuff, it's been amazing stories and it's great content. I just sometimes can't get to all of them. So this portal allows uh, a way for agencies and brands to release their, their news and updates through Cause Artists and will get distributed through the Cause Artists ecosystem. I'll link down below and it, it kind of shows you all the, the features that you would get when submitting a press release. Um, and if you have any questions, as always, grant at causeartist.com. Hope you guys have a great day. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll talk soon. Thanks. So how I usually like to start these is with the individual's journey. 
Yours has been long and, and interesting. So we can go as far back as you want. But if you want to maybe start at like MIT and, and maybe like right after that, what was sort of the mindset and, and what was sort of the, the thought process of, uh, of taking on the world at that point? So uh, I started my first company when I was uh, at school at MIT. It was a, a company a very creatively named Feld Technologies. Uh, I learned I learned lesson number seven hundred and thirty seven of business is never name your company after yourself because when things go wrong they call and ask for Mister mm. Feld. And that was a self funded company. I had a uh, a partner and uh, he and I and my dad were the only shareholders. My dad was an advisor to us uh, and we had ten shares of stock. So six. <laughs> Six for me, three for him, and one for my dad. And when we sold the company, we only had 10 shares of stock. Uh, fortunately, they were worth a lot more than a dollar when we sold the company. Nice. And uh, we built that business um, between 1987 uh, and 1993. Grew it to a couple million dollars a year in revenue, always profitable because we were bootstrapping. And it's just, just selling software to companies? No, we were, we were a software consulting company. Okay. So this was during a period of time where it was very hard to write uh, software for businesses or very hard for businesses to use commercial software. Mm -hmm. The web didn't exist yet as a commercial thing. Uh, we were in the shift early on, we were doing database applications. So for the old people in the audience, things like, <laughs> you know, the, the languages that you would use would be like DBase and Paradox. But we were a software engineering team. So we actually used more sophisticated languages and built real software, sort of more similar to commercial software okay. versus kind of the stuff that you do with these database languages. And uh, it was also a time where networking and computers being networked together in an office was just coming out of the fore. So it was very hard to get software to work in that kind of environment for more than a single user. Right. So there's a fair amount of complexity in what we built. And, but we mostly did uh, one-off custom systems, but we'd end up doing similar things over time for different clients. Uh, and sort of building on the base of code that we developed. We sold that business in 1993 to a public company, and that was totally random. Um, hmm. uh, it was We were approached, uh, introduced to them, I, I should say, by a company that we we did some work with in Boston. I was in living in Boston at the time that was a cabling company. Hmm. So when we would install software, you know, build build something for a client of ours, oftentimes they'd need to have hardware installed to run a network on it. And in the office space, it was pre-Wi-Fi. So you actually had to run cable. Wow. And we had a, a firm that ran the cable and, you know, we'd hook up the computers and then load the software and then help the client manage all that stuff. And they had recently been acquired by this company and they just introduced the co-chairman to, to me. I didn't really know why I was getting together with Len the right. first time and we just had lunch together and <laughs> it was a really interesting lunch kind of you know, lunch with anybody that wants to have lunch with you and run a company and at the end of the conversation he said you know i really like what you're about and i've heard really good things about you know what y'all are doing from from this other company is called allcom we'd like to we'd like to talk about buying your company oh well, you, you were still were you still in college at the time no i was in my mid-20s okay okay and so uh, Len uh, was running a company then called Sage Alerting Systems. It eventually became called Ameridata Technologies. And after about a six-month dance, uh, Ameridata bought Feld Technologies. We became part of them. They, I think we were the seventh of uh, a bunch of companies that they acquired in a three-year period. And uh, they were public and growing very, very fast. So it was very interesting to shift from this role of being the CEO. And we, actually, I didn't know what a CEO was at that point. So <laughs> I just called myself president, president of this 20-person company in Boston that had you know great reputation, a lot of clients, very busy, but was small. 
to now being uh, on the staff, leadership staff, leadership team of this very fast growing public company. Mm -hmm. And I got very involved. I didn't know anything about deals. I'd never invested in a company prior to my company being bought. And I never bought or sold a company until that company was acquired. Um, but I got involved in a bunch of deal activity that was led by Len and his partner, Jerry Pock, um, as one of the technical people on the deal team. So suddenly I started to be involved in these M&A discussions where you know, I was part of evaluating the companies they were buying. Hmm. I also, you know, made a couple of million dollars from selling that first company. I took almost all the money that I made and over a course of three years made 40 angel investments uh, between 1994 and 1996. Uh, and there were $25,000, $50,000 at the time, but it was at the beginning of the rise of the commercial internet. And so the activity in that moment in time was incredible around startups and entrepreneurship and investing. And so I really learned how to invest as a seed or early stage investor during, during that period of time by making a bunch of these investments. Along the way, uh, Ameridata got bought by GE Capital for about a half a billion dollars back when that was a huge acquisition in the technology mm -hmm. market. <laughs> and I ended up partnering with uh, a group that worked for a Japanese company called SoftBank and a handful of other mm -hmm. Uh, investors who were investing alongside of SoftBank, and they included some some names that may be familiar to people. Fred Wilson, who currently runs uh, Union Square Ventures. Jerry Colonna, who ended up starting a venture fund with Fred called Flatiron Partners. Jerry now runs a coaching firm called Reboot, uh, and a guy named Rich Levendov. And we all sort of did our own things, but with this team from SoftBank. And in 1997, a subset of the team, uh, three of the people on the team and I, went and raised a fund that SoftBank sponsored, and I accidentally became a venture capitalist. So I never really thought hard about it, just was mm -hmm. kind of doing this thing. During this period of time, my wife, Amy Batchelor, and I moved out to Boulder. So in 1995, we moved to Boulder, Colorado. We knew one person, he moved away about six months later. So <laughs> we moved to Boulder to build a life. Um, and the logical place for me to go would have been Silicon Valley or Bay Area. Right, and right. I didn't really like the Bay Area. I was there a lot, and mm -hmm. I was in Seattle a lot, and I was in New York a lot because of all the investments that I was making. But we're just looking for a place to live. And we figured if we didn't like uh, Boulder, we'd just go west, you know, try another place west. And six months in, we we were like, yep, this is it. We're going to be here for the duration. And, you know, 25 years later, I, I would say I have intense topophilia for Colorado, which is love of place. Really uh, love living here, love yeah. being here. And, you know, this is, this is our place. I just got back from Colorado and it was... Uh... I go there once a year. We usually drive there. We even, we're in Kansas City, so we usually drive. Yep. You know, we take about the 10, 11 hour drive, you know, around the Boulder area. Actually never went to, to Boulder, we've just been around the, the, the metro area, like Golden and Fort Collins yep. and Breckenridge area, Dillon, Frisco, just it's, a, it's a great, it's, it's, a great a, place. it's an amazing place. And, and the one thing I wanted to, to go back on real quick was, like you said, you, you never really intended to, to get into sort of venture and, and it, it, it kind of just happened. It seems like, how everything's happened so far. Like, it, you know, I started a company. I didn't know what a CEO was, but it just like happened. We're just kind of doing stuff you're passionate about and, and what you knew how to do. And you were just building stuff that, that you enjoyed. And then things, you know, fell into place, right? Just just by coming from a place of passion. I think that happens often when, when people are building companies, not with the intention of, of selling or, or going public with just the intention of just building something amazing for, for people and their customers. Usually, generally good things really happen. How, how did you, into, I know it kind of just happened, but like getting into venture, did, did somebody approach you after you know your company you know sold? And did you have friends coming up to you and say, uh, you know, I had this company, I had this, this idea, right? And, and is that sort of how it, it took place initially? And you were like, oh, this is a great idea. I'll invest in it. It just kind of happenstance like that. Well, the, the evolution is interesting. Um, 
you know, I, I am very, I'm a curious person. I love to, to learn. Uh, I'm very intrinsically motivated by new things and by learning and exploring stuff. And uh, after I sold that first business, I was in Boston and, you know, that was 1990, end of 93. So I was in Boston for another year and a half, uh, almost two years. And I was now a visible, successful entrepreneur in Boston. Right. And uh, I was spending a lot of time, you know, with my new job working for Ameridata, but also um, getting to meet different people who are starting companies in and around Boston and around entrepreneurship. And so my network expanded very, very quickly. And it expanded on a couple of dimensions. One is uh, I met uh, a number of different, I hung out at MIT a lot. So I met a bunch yeah. of, of undergraduates and some people who had recently graduated who are starting companies and I'd make investments in their companies. And because I became known as an investor uh, in these very early stage companies at the beginning of this commercial internet rise, all of a sudden, lots of people were reaching out to me. And so I was just meeting with whomever and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and making investments in people and products that I was interested in. But I also got connected into the more experienced entrepreneurial world in Boston and, and people who had had some you know, success or had built some bigger companies. Uh, and so my world overlapped with them as well. Uh, and then, of course, I started to connect with venture capitalists that were funding mm -hmm. companies in Boston at the time. So what I concentrated on was not having a strategy for meeting people, but just being available and engaging mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, getting to know folks and exploring things and seeing what was interesting. And in the context of that, not just trying to figure out like what my next thing was. Right. But investing in all these things and actively helping support other entrepreneurs being successful with their businesses. And over time, uh, I developed and, you know, over a long period of time, I've developed a philosophy around that, which at Techstars, we've now uh, hashtagged, which is called Give First. And the philosophy that we had prior to that, or the, the way I described it was this idea of give before you get. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm willing to put energy into a system or into anything without knowing what I'm going to get out of it. It's not altruism. I expect to get something back, but I don't know <laughs> when, from whom, over what time period, and what right. consideration, what form. And so, you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't kind of as simple as I'll meet with anyone, but I would meet with people and I would try to figure out, you know, what that what I could do for them. Mm -hmm. It was less what they could do for me, but what I could do for them, how I could be helpful to them. And more often than not, that turned into when they were receptive to that, and there was something I could figure out I could be helpful with. That turned into. Uh, the beginning of a relationship, which then over time developed into a, a wide variety of opportunities. It's a great segue into Techstars. Talk about the origins of that, because I think it's swelled up to be one of the most recognized. I think, you know, we could talk about startup communities or ecosystem, whatever, whatever language we want to use. But I think it's one of the most recognized uh, sort of brands out there in the startup world. And I think it's, it's sort of enabled people, I think, access to what startups are even, right? And, and to get introduced to to the, the elementary level of like, you know, what, what does a, a company look like from the very early stages, right? How do you even get an idea off the ground? I think it's so important, the educational aspect of, of a lot of these different things that we just need to, to get out in the world, right? It's not a Silicon Valley thing, it's, it's an every city thing. And I think that's what Techstars ha, has accomplished. So talk a little bit about the origins of that. Well, in some ways it has a, a very, kind of consistent and karmic beginning. <laughs> the way that this evolved was literally, I used to do these things called random meetings. Mm. And so I would have random meetings on once a month. I'd meet with 10 to 15 people over the course of the day. I do 15 minute meetings with anybody that wanted to meet with me. Wow. And I, in those meetings, I tried to accomplish two things. One is I tried to learn one thing 
and and you know over the course of a day if i had 15 meetings maybe 10 of them were successful and five of them <laughs> you know either i didn't learn something or i couldn't help the person with something but that's fine and sure. uh david cohen david cohen who knew of me but didn't know me was starting to percolate on the idea for tech stars and had talked to uh david brown who david the two davids have been partners in a previous company called uh, pinpoint that had, had a very successful self-funded business that had a successful exit and Cohen was unhappy. He'd made some angel investments, but he just wasn't that excited about how angel investing was working. Hmm. He got on my calendar, got an introduction to me, got on my calendar. It took about three months for us to have our meeting. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there were moments of eye rolling that he and the two Davids had. It was like, this guy, three months to get together with this guy? What's that? <laughs> um, but, you know, just how I did these random days. And we got together and David sat down and he gave me a piece of paper that described basically what a Techstars accelerator was. You know, 90 days. Uh, 10 companies, lots surround them with mentors, give them a little bit of money and try to help create some, you know, new angel investments and, and new early stage companies out of this. And I read that and, and immediately was charmed by it. And mm -hmm. my immediate response, I didn't know him. I said, look, unless, you know, I need to make a couple phone calls, but unless you're, uh, unless you're a crook or a flake, I'm in. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I asked him, you know, sort of how he was thinking about funding it. And he, he said, uh, well, you know, I'm going to put in, you know, $80,000. And I think if I can find an investor, you know, David Brown, will put in $50,000. And, you know, I kind of want to raise a couple hundred thousand dollars. And so I said, okay, uh, I'm in for 50. Hang on one sec. And I walked out of the room and I called a, another friend, a guy named Jared Polis, uh, who had been a very successful entrepreneur, was one of the first people I met when I moved to Boulder and had, had you know, been a, been a really good friend. And I called him and I said, Hey, Jared, I'm investing in this thing called Techstars. Do you want to kind of tell you about it? He says, uh, I'll match whatever you're doing. What is it? That's a and good I, way. To, that's a good way to start the conversation. Though, huh? And, and, you know, so Jared, you know, I explained, he's like, yep, I'm good. And so I walked back into the room. I said to David, all right, Jared Polis is in for, for 50. I'm in for 50. I think your fundraising is done. Let's go do this thing. <laughs> and that's how it got started. And it's how a lot of things get started, yeah. right? Like, you know, granted the fundraising there was easier than a lot of, a lot of startups, but it was a handful of people with a motive of force and just a decision of, you know what, this is an interesting idea. Let's go try it. Our worst case, and, and we really viewed our worst case was we'd run Techstars in Boulder for one year. Mm -hmm. I'd invested way more money and way stupider things. My worst case is that I'd lose my investment, um, but I'd make some new friends and I'd learn some things and I'd understand whether this model worked or not. And then, you know, 14 years later, it's very clear that that not, not only was an effective model, but that we've learned an incredible amount about how to create companies and not just in Boulder, Colorado, but democratizing yep. entrepreneurship yep. and company creation globally yep. and really helping build sort of a, a way of thinking about startups and startup community and, and the evolution of uh, growing and developing startup communities all over the world. How many cities is it in now? Techstars probably has about 30 distinct locations for accelerators, mm -hmm. but is in almost every country in the world through programs like Startup Weekend and Startup Week. Right. So Techstars has a number of other things that it does beyond just accelerators at this point. It's a, it's become a, a quite a large business, about 300 people. And, and it's a very global business, and that's the intention from the beginning. So my passion really lies in social impact startups and the idea that we can use the startup mentality, business mentality to, you know, solve issues, not only in America, right, but, but around the world, right? And, and the idea that a company, of course, needs to make money, right? But can it also be beneficial to, to society overall rather than like detrimental in, in, in some ways, right? And, and I know that I know Techstars has some some sort of social impact, I guess, cohorts that they do in, in, in some cities like that. But how do you look at social impact startups and, and the, the sort of maturity 
over time of whether it's impact investing or looking at startups from from a different light, right? Rather than just eventual acquisition or IPO, but maybe like actual like human and environmental impact that it takes the, the toll that the company may take, you know, on society in general. Well, I think there's there's a an interesting challenge in the world of entrepreneurship in general, which is this, you know, set of cliches or beliefs about, you know, we want to change the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, companies like Google that for a long, long times had taglines like do no evil. Uh, you know, you can create an incredibly successful company that is that is only a force for good, uh, mm-hmm. you know, is now something that I think a lot of people are, are reflecting on and saying, well, there may be some really amazing things that have been accomplished by that company and some really good things that have come out of it, but there have been some really bad things yeah. uh, that have happened as unintended consequences as well. And you know, the, probably the, 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 the poster child for that in the, in the contemporary debate is Facebook, you know, in terms of both connecting the world, but also really uh, amplifying misinformation and, and impacting in a negative way mm-hmm. a lot of uh, societal norms mm-hmm. um, because of you know both unintended consequences, but also probably decisions that they've made as a company, some of which may be profit-seeking decisions, some of which may just be things that were unanticipated. So mm-hmm. I, I think that if you if you sort of view entrepreneurship through that lens, you you come up sh- you come up short where the entrepreneur says, I want to change the world. And you know, there's a joke that, you know, you want to change the world and you gave me like the 74th food delivery app, you know, <laughs> or the 292nd way to do a social network. Or another, um, another HR accounting, uh, or another app. HR accounting app, or another <laughs> another video game, or whatever. Like, sure. that's not to denigrate those companies, but it, it you know, it, it doesn't land with what you are talking about in terms of social yeah. good. I like to think of it the other way because you can go far the other end of the spectrum, which is that you don't have a commercial intent, uh, and and you just have a philanthropic intent, and and that's fine, and but that's a different type of business structure, and that's a different Correct. type of end goal. So for me, I've looked for organizations. Uh, that are doing things that actually over a long period of time have very significant uh, positive impacts on you know, society and our planet, and then trying to figure out how to work with those organizations. And I'll give a very specific example in a minute to build startups and innovation around the worlds that they're working in and have those startups actually have potentially transformative and really meaningful impact on those worlds. My favorite example from Techstars is the meeting of two different organizations that my wife, Amy Bachelor and I are very involved in, which is Techstars and the Nature Conservancy. Hmm. Um, Amy's, Amy's on the board, the global board of the Nature Conservancy. We've been supporters of it for many, many years. Uh, we believe that the Nature Conservancy is the most significant research-based organization uh, around uh, the health of our planet, climate change, but not just climate change, many other factors that are all interrelated because, of course, our planet is an incredibly complex system. So you don't solve a problem and then everything is good. You have an right. endless endless stream of things you're trying to address. And historically, uh, Nature, the Nature Conservancy has been a very research-based organization. They have, I don't know, five, 600 scientists on staff uh, and are very, very focused on research activity around different issues. Hmm. However, those scientists are not entrepreneurs and the research is not around innovation and creation of new innovative products, uh, too many of those solutions. And so three years ago, uh, Techstars and TNC entered a partnership. It's called the Techstars Sustainability Accelerator. And it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's staffed by both 
uh, Techstars and uh, TNC, Nature Conservancy people. And it's an accelerator that has 10 companies a year that goes through it, where those 10 companies are working on companies hmm. doing things in and around sustainability. Uh, could be ocean health, water health, uh, could be uh, land conservation, could be you know soil health, could be energy, and you know whether you want to label it clean energy or alternative energy sources. Right. It could be there's one of my favorite, two of my favorite uh, fish related applications. One is uh, something that was a pretext stars thing that that uh, TNC got involved in called Fish Face, uh, using uh, cameras uh, to identify and monitor the health of schools of fish in different places and using you know, computer vision uh, and machine learning to try to understand what was going on with these schools of fish. Another one, uh, I'm not gonna remember the name of it now, uh, is uh, basically a CRM system for uh, fish uh, that are being sold. So one of the challenges with uh, fish is that you keep track of, you know, where the fish came from and where the fish got sold to and how sure. much of the fish was sold. Um, but it's very manual. It's literally scribbles on pieces of paper. <laughs> uh, and so the supply chain management for fish from, you know, where they ultimately consumed uh, is very, very weak and very manual. And uh, this company built software that allowed um, all the fisheries in the world and all the fish markets in the world to all of a sudden automate all of these procedures, um, which is, you know, fascinating to sort of understand, like from the outside, you don't really understand uh, the issue. But when you get into it, you realize that there's a huge issue around the, the harvesting uh, of these fish and where they come from and what people want in terms of uh, especially when you move into the world of uh, restaurants and mm. sushi and like understanding, you know, where it actually came from versus even in better quality organic food, uh, even in frozen food, sort of starting to understand mm -hmm. uh, that lineage. So th these would be a wide variety of types of companies. And some of them, when you look at it, you say, I don't know what that has to do necessarily on day one with conservation. Mm -hmm. That's okay. It's innovation around the sustainability yeah. world. Yeah. And I encourage more and more scaled organizations uh, to try to apply uh, those type of uh, the type of entrepreneurial mindset, engage in broader connections into other startup communities and get innovation into their system rather than sort of view uh, sort of social good and, and social business and social entrepreneurship as a parallel universe. I, I want to touch on real quick with, with the ocean. Alarming stat that has sort of been journeyed around is that by 2050, we may have more plastic in the ocean than actual fish. If we don't understand that that's a problem and that there needs to be innovation around not having that occur, because once I think the, the ecosystem of the ocean erodes, capitalism erodes, uh, cities start to erode, because like you said, like we're seeing with restaurants now, local economies cannot really survive very well without their local restaurants, without the local markets uh, that primarily use the ocean for their economy. I'm born and raised in New Orleans and, uh, you know, we've had several natural disasters and oil spills that have constantly punched that economy down because they're so dependent on the ocean and, and what comes out of that. Right. And I think that understanding that that ecosystem is the best ecosystem we actually have for, for business surviving, right. And capitalism surviving. And to not innovate around that and not have that as, as sort of at the top of mind on, you know, innovation around the world seems to be really odd to me. Well, I'm, I'm 
you know, my, my optimistic side is that COVID is a wake-up call for mm, the, yeah. the human species. My pessimistic side is that the human species has a very short attention span. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we'll move on to whatever is next. You know, if you're uh, realistic, I think, about things like COVID, you'll start with the recognition that this is not a one-time event that we're going to solve, mm-hmm. um, but this is probably a continual event. Uh, uh, in terms of our species and the management of things in the way that there are many other things that are continuous events um, and are essential elements of of complex systems. There are systems that don't have a deterministic outcome. And when you think about that and how all these things interrelate, um, the way that as a society we interact going forward with things can be one where we try to control what's happening, that will be unsuccessful. And, you know, your comment about um, ocean health specifically is there's an enormous pop percentage of the population in, on the planet that pays no attention to ocean health and won't probably until there is a fundamental crisis. Yeah. And the, the thing that is hopefully a wake-up call about COVID is that waiting for the crisis to be upon us <laughs> is too late. Too late. And yeah. it's, it's not just, you know, oh, well, we need to take care of the planet. Um, There are many, many, many other elements that we have as a species um, that if we wait until the crisis is truly upon us, it's going to be too late. And, you know, we're seeing this emerge from the COVID crisis in the U.S. I believe that we are actually dealing with the collision of four crises. Each crisis is a complex system and that, you know, the things that occur along the way generate completely new types of behaviors that are not easily predictable and that there's not a playbook for how you deal with the crisis. Mm -hmm. And those four crises are the health crisis, which is the disease, the economic crisis, which resulted from the health crisis, the mental health crisis that's resolving or resulting from both of those. Which we have yet to really see, I think. Yeah. And it's starting to emerge and people are starting to talk about it. And and there's lots of places where, you know, I think there's a lot of anxiety building about the fall because there's an enormous number of people in the U.S. who would like to believe that school will just go back to normal right. and their kids will go back to school and our life will go back to a pattern that we're used to. And yeah, sure, there's some non, you know, greater than 0% chance that that will happen. And that may happen in certain places around the world, but there is no way that is going to be consistently true everywhere. And, you know, w- what's going to happen? I don't know, you know, and we'll know in September and we'll know in October and we'll know in December and November and we'll be dealing with it then. And then the fourth crisis, of course, is is the resurgence and amplification of a racial equity crisis, um, which is a crisis that's been going on right. in our country since the inception. Mm-hmm. And all of these things are linked together. They're not separable. They're all crises that have, you know, ebb and flow and have been going on for long periods of time. You know, I grew up, I was in college in the 1980s when HIV AIDS mm. uh, appeared and that was a health crisis. And it was a, it was a very scary disease. It was very misunderstood. It had enormous stigma association associated with it. And, you know, today in 2020, there's still no vaccine for HIV. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of better understanding about how to manage the disease and how, you know, to live with HIV uh, and how, you know, a good understanding of how it's transmitted you know, different approaches uh, around uh, diseases like HIV can be managed in terms of safe sex and, and other things, not sharing needles. You know, for four or five years, there was right. kind of no understanding of what any of that was. And by the way, HIV is the disease. It's not the thing that kills you. It's the thing or, you know, it's the virus, but it's not the thing that kills you. The thing that kills you is the secondary effect from hmm. the disease. In a year or two, a hypothesis, I don't know if it's fact or not. You see lots of stuff being written about it already. Right. 
But a year or two, there may be lots of interesting and scary second order effects of COVID. So it's not just that you got a virus and survived the virus, right. but that virus may have some negative long-term impacts on your health. Right. Uh, and again, all of these things are intermingled uh, in a way that you can't top-down control them. And you know, that for me, that's been a really powerful and fascinating way to think about the moment. And again, my optimistic sense is that you know, as a species, um, we'll learn from it. My pessimistic sense is, as a species, you know, we we have uh, you know we we have dogs, and we like to joke that you know you, 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 the dog's looking at you, looking at you, you look at you, and if you say squirrel, the dog goes like that, right? It's all of a sudden looking for the squirrel, <laughs> and like that's what we do all day long, right? You know, uh, dog food, dog food, dog squirrel, <laughs> and I, I, you know, if that happens, that's I mean that that's the natural tendency that we have. Yeah, I, I think a lot of the conversation we've had, and really throughout your your career, it's a lot of it's been built around community, right? Whether it's a small community where it's four or five people, whether it's TechStars is is started as a small community and now it's sort of this global community. I'm starting to look more at community as a as a really big part of Cause Artist and trying to really build that into to my ecosystem and try to understand the power in that especially in this day and age when we can connect with people globally and, and you know, bring that brain power together to, to create some really interesting things. And I, I know before we had chat, we talked about uh, the Venture Deals book that was, was written. How long ago was that now? Was that like a decade? Yeah, it's almost been a decade. I think it came out in 2010 or 11, <laughs> yeah. right, right around 2010. Yeah. And uh I'm always fascinated when people are able to actually like write books because my, like we, we talked just about the squirrel thing, dog, dog, squirrel. Like that's kind of like my mind all the time. And I, I can't imagine sitting down and, and sort of like focusing that broadly and that effectively into, into a book. But the new book, why, why write that now? Why release it now? And I, I guess what's the, the mission behind it, right? I guess what would you want people to get out of it? Because after I'm almost done venture deals, um, and I've got a ton out of it, right? So this book, I, I think, if you put those two together, it's almost a, a college degree in, in, in the subject matter. Uh, if you read the, these two together, so I guess what was the reason for for writing it, and what's the overall uh, synopsis of it? Yeah, so there's there's an arc in the in the startup community way of thinking. So in 2012, I wrote the first edition of. Yep. A book called Startup Communities. And at the time, the phrase startup communities didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And in 2010, coming out of the global financial crisis, there was uh, a, a bunch of people starting to assert, including me, that the way out of the global financial crisis was through innovation and entrepreneurship. And at the time, there was still the cliche that if you wanted to create a technology company, you need to go to the Bay Area and do it in the Bay Area. And if you're really serious, and I just didn't believe that. I didn't believe that. That was not my frame of reference. That was not uh, my belief system. So the goal of startup communities, which emerged from a lot of my experience with Techstars, uh, building now, Techstars started to expand into other cities. And I think we had programs by the time I wrote the book in Boston and Seattle and New York and Chicago, and maybe we had one in San Antonio and a couple of others. Uh, I had formed this view that any city in the world that has at least 100,000 people should have, uh, mm. can, can support a startup community, and in fact, should have one as part of the fabric of the city, as part of yeah. the innovation economy. And not the only thing, you need a bunch of other things to make a city healthy, but that was a key thing. That book came out incredibly 
successful uh, uh, framework that I called the Boulder Thesis that was very straightforward, was not terribly complicated, but at the time was uh, was counterintuitive. Uh, and in 2017, I sat down with a friend, Ian Hathaway, who's the co-author of right. the new book, The Startup Community Way, with the idea of answering the question, okay, it's been five years, now what? <laughs> and one of my uh, one of my principles in, in what I called the Boulder Thesis uh, from the startup communities is that you have to have a long-term view uh, to building a startup community. And I used mm. to say you have to have a 20-year view. And I adjusted that to say you have to have a 20-year view from today. Hmm. You always have to be looking right. far into the future. Yeah. And uh, in the context of that, in some ways, it was a little ironic that five years in, we were like getting the question regularly, what now? It's kind of like, well, you got another 15 years. But that, that wasn't helpful. And so we started working through how to, you know, how to help people think now that they're in their journey where to go. And it took us about a year before we, you know, we, 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 we threw away most of what we wrote the first year. Um, oh. writing, a, writing, writing a book is brutally hard. Oh, and, I know. Yeah. And, you know, Amen. for me, I, I, I like doing it because it causes me to think through things hmm. um, or allows me to think through things. It's one of the ways I read and I write, and it's one of the ways that I, I work through problems. And uh, about 2018, Ian landed on the idea that a startup community was a complex adaptive system. And so then we ended up using the idea of complexity theory and the notion of complex systems uh, to describe uh, how startup communities work hmm. and to help people understand how to evolve their startup community from the starting point of the Boulder thesis. So that's the book, The Startup Community Way. I also came out at the same time with the second edition of Startup Communities. I refreshed it. I updated some of the stories and I added a couple of chapters. I added one on corporations and how corporations can work with startup communities. Hmm. Uh, and I also added one on uh, rural startup communities and how to deal with startup communities in cities smaller than 100,000 people hmm. uh, and how to actually think of that if you're in a five or 10 or 15,000 person city. And so those two things, uh, those those two books uh, you know, are, are a pair where Startup Communities is is the setup and the startup community way is the sequel and you can read them independently i mean the startup community sure. way stands on its on its own and that was our goal but for anyone who's really focused and interested in entrepreneurship in their city and how to grow and develop a startup community i i am hopeful that we've created a broad base for it one last nuance which uh, appears in the time of covid uh, a lot of the work uh, and a lot of the writing and thinking around start, startup community is very place based Mm -hmm. Right, the Kansas City right. startup community, right. the Boulder startup right. community, and there's there's a word I used earlier, topophilia, which means love of place, uh, that I learned from uh, John Hickenlooper, who was then governor of Colorado. Yeah. Jared Polis, who's the co-founder of TechStars, is now governor uh, of Colorado, and I learned topophilia from John. And uh, I have intense love of place for Colorado. So a lot of the ideas are place based. In the book, there's some notion of uh, startup community and community development that's independent of place. <laughs> and of course, now that we're, you know, I, it would have never occurred to me that the book comes out around complex systems, comes out in the middle of probably the most vibrant or violent, depending on what word you want to use, right. a collision of complex systems in my lifetime, you know, the COVID crisis. But many of the ideas apply independent of place. So I'm I'm glad we were able to get a little bit of that into the book, uh, even though that wasn't our focal point, because I actually think the importance of communities and startup communities in general that are domain based instead of place based, hmm. you know, that yeah. are topic topic based are right. going to be incredibly important in the future. The the last thing I want to touch on one question and then I'll end on one is the the idea of of startup communities and 
the notion that it really wasn't even a word like a decade ago, right? Like it, it, it kind of yeah. was it, even in the ether of, of individuals' mindsets. How, how do you think America has progressed in the startup community landscape versus globally? Because there's so many interesting things happening around the world. And, you know, American startup sort of ideology seems to have expanded to global cities, right? As, as Techstars yeah. did. Do you find it? Do you find it fascinating how the how the world has sort of really gravitated towards you know startup communities or, or just the startup ecosystem and really using that? Israel, for example, there's like tons of really creative, amazing companies that come out of like Israel, right? And it's just like it's just a a place you wouldn't think about, right? That that it is sort of like this micro Silicon Valley, right? And there's tons of places uh, around the world that are sort of tech hubs, Amsterdam and Australia is creating some cool companies. So it's like. It's really interesting to see that globally, the startup ideology, so to speak, or like community-based, you know, startup thinking coming out from around the world. Do you, do you see the same thing? So two things. One is, uh, I think there's been an incredible democratization of entrepreneurship globally in the last decade, and uh, it makes me incredibly happy. Yeah. So I, I, again, I go back to my premise that every city in the world that has at least 100,000 people should have a startup community. The idea that entrepreneurship uh, and the the entrepreneurial mindset uh, and the values around company creation and the values around startup communities uh, is a global phenomenon is awesome. Yeah. Um, the second, and this is really, it's an important part of of startup communities, and it's also an important part of uh, uh, complex systems. Is is we're not playing a zero sum game. We're not playing a game where there's a winner and a loser. Uh, in fact, uh, in complex system theory, going back to the very beginning in the 1980s when it emerged in the Santa Fe Institute, uh, there was the idea of increasing returns. And uh, the yeah. idea of increasing returns was the inverse of diminishing returns. We, you know, I think a lot of people know diminishing returns. You know, At some point, if you put an extra you know, hour into something, the gain that you get is much smaller than the first time you put an hour into something. A simple example of that would be cleaning your bathroom. Like if you clean your bathroom for an hour, it's probably as clean as it's going to get <laughs> until it gets dirty again. If you clean it for another hour, it might get a little bit cleaner, but it's not dramatic. It's not worth the extra hour. Right, right. Increasing returns is the opposite, is that as things develop in a system, you have positive, uh, positive feedback loops that increase the return characteristics. And there's a whole bunch of theory around that and, and different dynamics around can you have increasing returns forever? No. And what right. happens and how do you deal with, with that? And in innovation theory, there's a well-known notion of an S-curve, which is you have an upward sloping curve for a while. And as it starts to flatten, your goal would be to jump to the next S-curve of innovation to get mm -hmm. that innovation up. But in the context of a, a, a zero-sum game, if you turn it around, and in the first book, I called it a non-zero-sum game, uh, and I've changed that to now call it a positive-sum game. I don't know why I called it a non-zero-sum game other than I was trying to say it's the opposite of a zero-sum game. It just didn't occur to me that a better phrase would be a positive-sum game. That's what we're playing. It's not that the U.S. has to beat China or China has to beat the U.S. And yeah, there's a lot of interesting second-order effects that come out of innovation, but mm -hmm. you know, both countries are going to innovate like uh, in in the construct of that against you know every other country on the planet you know Israel any country in Europe any country in South America any country you know Australia New Zealand like the whole notion that these geographic places are competing with each other on a I win you lose basis is right. illogical yeah there's, there's definitely differences mm -hmm. and there's definitely allocation of resource dynamics but I I strongly believe that we're in a place where the innovation curve is a positive sum game 
uh, across our planet right now versus a UN I lose. Well, I appreciate the conversation. I knew it would Likewise, be. This was I, knew, I knew it would be a great one. So uh, I'm glad we got it. I'm glad we got it on the, on the calendar. I, I know you're busy, and I really truly appreciate uh, you taking the time out your day. And uh, best of luck, obviously, the rest of this year and and in uh, 2021 and so on. Thanks, Grant. This was a lot of fun. And uh, you know, next next trip around Colorado, person, I see you. And if not, uh, we'll text each other.